Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I speak with Chris Hunter, co-founder and CEO of Koya, a healthy and convenient line of plant-based protein drinks sold in Walmart, Target, 7-Eleven, Costco, Whole Foods, and other stores nationwide. He explains how an investment in another drink company that ultimately didn't succeed led to the rebranding and repositioning of what eventually became Koya. He talks about the three-tier system of the alcohol market and the differences between that and the non-alcoholic beverage market. He explains from deep experience about the challenges and opportunities in the beverage space, specifically around distribution. What I loved about my conversation with Chris is that he's an open book and is willing to talk about his failed businesses, as well as the ones where he hit it out of the park. He's a great entrepreneur with an ability to see upcoming trends and intuit what customers are going to want. I learned a lot from his journey. Enjoy. Yeah, hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for joining me. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, just jumping on and, uh, you know, being willing to speak speak with me for a little while. I, I love your product branding and, and your guys' website. And uh, so I'm just very interested in hearing the story. But first, we, we like to kick off with like a with a quote or, or um, you know, a quote that maybe means something to you or has influenced you in some way. Do you have one in mind that you could share with us? You know, there are so many great quotes and I, I see them daily because one of my uh, morning journal practices has has inspirational quotes in it. But there's actually two that stand out that I thought were kind of appropriate here. And they're, they're kind of reflective of my mindset. So the first one is is by Mark Twain. And it's the secret to getting ahead is getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one kind of plays on that is from Martin Luther King or Dr. Martin Luther King. But it's take the first step in faith, you don't need to see the whole staircase just to take the first step. And and the reason I think those both play well, first of all, together, and then in my lifestyle or in, and mentality is because sometimes there's, you know, paralysis uh, by analysis mm-hmm. and people overthink things. And starting a company is one of those things that is often overthought. And throughout my career, I've realized that you know, all the planning and all the preparation and, and all that stuff that you do um, can be good. But if it stops you from taking the first step, then it's, then it's pointless, right? And the reality is most of the time you get into whatever it is and you kind of figure it out along the way anyways. So I think it's really important just to talk about, you know, taking the first step in action. I love, I love both those quotes. And uh, I always love a good Mark Twain quote. So, so that one's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I actually want to dig into something that you just said, which is the morning journal practice. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that is? What, what do you do? Yeah. So I've gone through a couple of different practices and, um, and just like everybody, I'm not perfect at it. So it, it kind of ebbs and flows, but I started with doing the five minute journal, uh, which was like kind of just this quick questionnaire and, and, um, and kind of like daily practice of answering a few questions, showing some gratitude, uh, a couple of reflections. And ultimately I found this this great tool called the best self journal that I use. And so each morning you kind of write out what's 
uh, or the night before, you write out what's um, what's on your schedule for the day, a couple key priorities or items. Um, you show some morning gratitude with three items. Your um, on the next page, you do your daily goals. So you know what you're focused on or hoping to achieve, uh, not in that day, but but in the next quarter or year, and then you know a couple of today's targets and then there's followed by a, it's followed by a quote. And then in the night uh, or in the evening, it offers some reflections. So lessons learned throughout the day, wins of the day, and then gratefuls at night. So I, I just really enjoy it again, not perfect at it, but uh, I just find that it's, it helps me, you know, get in the right mindset for the day and um, to end the day. Right. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's great. So is there somewhere like people could go to, to find out more information about this? Did you, did you learn it somewhere? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a, a company called Best Self Journal. Uh, they sell journals. They have different, um, you know, uh, calendars and, and they can just look it up on the web. Okay, yeah. Sounds good. Um, let's, uh, let's dig into your background just a little bit. Um, where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I'm originally from a, town small town in northeast ohio a uh, youngstown it's um best known as uh, midway between cleveland and pittsburgh mm-hmm. and uh and that's where i grew up it's a it's a blue collar town like it was fueled by the automotive and steel industries back in the day um yeah and i, I grew up there and then went to ohio state so spent my first what 21 years in in ohio um and then moved to chicago which is, you know, the kind of the central city hub for the Midwest. If you don't go to New York, uh, most people end up in, in Chicago, which was great. It was I spent almost 13 years there, started my first company, married my wife, had our first child. Um, and now I currently live in North County, San Diego in a town called Encinitas. Right. Okay, cool. Um, I'm thinking of Youngstown. I think I watched in a, in a video, this was about Rockefeller and um, starting his oil uh, empire out there outside of Cleveland. It, I don't know. Is there a big oil uh, presence there in, in Youngstown or no? Um, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's an oil presence. Again, there was steel and automotive, but it was once, you know, as I got older, I was really intrigued by it. I remember as a kid, you know, my family's very young. So I knew my great grandmother and great grandfather very well. And I remember them talking about downtown Youngstown and how it was like this thriving city. And mm-hmm. that was very different than what I knew. And as I looked back at the history of the city, like uh, almost a year before I was born, so I was born in 78 and 77, they called a, uh, I think they called it Black Monday and, and one of the steel mills closed and like uh-huh. something like 40% of the population lost their job overnight. And so this, the city had a continual down, downward spiral, uh, both in terms of the economic status and the, the population because people were just fleeing for, for a long time. But uh, at one point, it was it was one of the larger cities in the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Carnegie Steel, yeah. So that that makes sense. Um, you know, out of, out of that area as well. I've kind of yeah. made a practice of of you know, I always like reading about entrepreneurs and um, you know, kind of uh, hearing those stories. Uh, and so I've actually gone kind of old school. So going back to the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and these guys just had such an influence on our, you know, the way that we live today, you know, um, but a lot of people just don't even know who they are. No, it's fascinating. I mean, when I think about those guys and how they dominated certain industries and I, I try to equate them to, 
to modern day, uh, you know, entrepreneurs. And it's, it's fascinating because there are the equivalents right now, right. Just in different sectors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and and it's pretty amazing when you see the modern day, you know, people that fit that profile and then, and then think back. And that was all up in, in that part of the country. You know, you talk about like mentalities of, of people. Youngstown is known for a very specific mentality. I mentioned it was blue collar, but it was also a, a thriving city. Um, you know, pretty diverse in terms of the the nationality mix is heavily Italian and, and Irish, but that city's also very well known um, for the athletes that have come out of it, particularly in in football and um, and boxing. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain grit that uh, that is associated with the area that I can relate to, and and it's funny. I have three young children now, all boys, and. My wife is from just outside of Youngstown, a town called Warren. And we talk about how, you know, we love having grown up there. I mean, it, it really did instill a work ethic and kind of a mentality that I think helped me in life. Um, and it's, it's been obviously a big evolution in the, the 42 years. But, but we're also saying, man, it's, it's crazy because we love having grown up there and it gave us so much, but we're also not raising our kids there. Um, right, right. You know, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dig into that. You know, you, you've got a pretty interesting history. Um, it sounds like you were always looking at, at starting a business or, you know, pretty entrepreneurial from, from, you know, from a young age. Is that true? Um, you know, your path definitely makes you, makes you look that way, but, um, is that what you were thinking as you were growing up that you wanted to start your own business? Yeah. I don't know if I thought that, uh, far into it. I mean, I realized that, uh, I think what I realized that in early was that, I could do things and I could, I could, uh, make money in non-typical ways. And what I mean by that is, you know, not a, a job, right? As a kid, you can't just go out and get a job, but I, I wanted to have some money to do some things that I wanted to at a very early age. And so I was the kid who would color, you know, coloring books, which most kids do. But if my mom or my aunt or somebody told me I did a good job, well, I'd rip it out and go down the, you know, down the street and try to sell it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that continued. I was the kid who bought bulk candy and sold it on the bus or, uh, you know, those kind of things continued throughout my, my life. I remember in high school, I was, I didn't know what they were at the time, but they were basically bootleg, you know, kind of knockoff Oakley's or t-shirts and sweatshirts. And I could buy them low and sell them high and, um, you know, got into all these different uh, interesting kind of quote unquote businesses. So I would say I, I equate it to just having a hustler mentality. You know, I was always looking for a way to, to kind of get ahead and, um, you know, do it a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your, your path. Um, and specifically kind of what led you to, you know, physical products, uh, you know, especially, um, you know, Koya today, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get the founding story, but, um, you know, you're in the beverage space, you know, which comes with its own set of, set of challenges and, and I'd say opportunities as well. Um, but, uh, you know, what about some of the businesses that sort of relate to, um, to food and to consumables, to maybe beverages? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll try to give you the relatively abbreviated version because I think I could talk about our, uh, for hours about path, but, um, it's, it's interesting, you know, these cliche sayings like, you know, hindsight's 2020, they're, they're cliche, but they're cliche for a reason because they're, they're true, right? And they've just become used so often. And, and when I look back, it's, it's so obvious why I'm in beverage, right? So when I think back, I, 
I moved to Ohio, uh, down in Oxford, Ohio, at my freshman year of college. And then I transferred to Ohio State. And uh, at Ohio State, I joined a fraternity and, and ended up going to work for a spring break company in Cancun for a quarter. And I realized um, what uh, you know promoting nightclubs was. So these people were getting paid to get people in the doors. And so when I went back to Ohio State, I said, well, this sounds like an amazing job in college. I was, you know, going out all the time anyways. Yeah. And so I threw my first party and made money and, and was like, this is a great way to, to pay my way through college because I was paying my way through college with loans, grants, and my own money. And, um, and so that started me down a path of just building a really big network, right? Meeting a lot of people, both in college and not. And the beauty of being in Columbus was that it was a large city. So it wasn't just a, you know, a small campus of 17,000 like Miami of Ohio. It was a, you know, 50,000 student undergrad with a million people in the city, you know, uh, location. Wow. Yeah. So, so I got to meet a lot of people and ultimately that led to a bunch of different things. Since I knew a lot of people, when Red Bull was first launching, I got to meet some of the brand ambassadors that were hired by that company to spread the word. And so they would bring me cases of Red Bull as it was launching and, um, and ask me to just give it out to people that, you know, I knew and, um, and bring it into some of the parties that I was throwing. And so that was an early example kind of of this path being laid for uh, laid out for me. Um, the second thing that happened is uh, um, Ohio has some very specific alcohol laws. And so to sell distilled spirits there, um, it's all run through the state. And so mm-hmm. I had a friend who worked for um, a wine distributor and they were representing a, a spirits brand, a flavored vodka that would mm-hmm. ultimately sell in like, the college campus bars or the nightclubs, but this distributor didn't have those relationships. And so she called me and she said, Hey, the guys that started this company are coming in town. They want to meet with these types of bars. We don't have those relationships. You do. You're throwing the parties at them all. Can you take us around? And I was just intrigued. I said, yeah, of course. Right. And so we went to all the bars and nightclubs that I knew the owners of set up meetings. And I watched this guy who was one of the founders of this company present his brand. And I saw how he was selling in the product. And, and, um, I found it really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I, I thought, you know, we as consumers in, in that market, we think we like what we like because it's what we like. And that's true to a degree, but we right. also drink what we, what we think we like because it's what's available. Right. And so like the state and, and the companies actually controlled that. And so, that was a fascinating kind of revelation for me. Anyways, I, I kept the guy's business card as I did with everybody at the time and just always figured they might come in handy. Um, in the meantime, with one of my buddies, I started a, a company that was a, it was going to be kind of like a high-end travel company that could get you access to whether it was nightclubs or uh, exclusive you know, resorts or whatever it may be. And that failed. We, we gave it a shot though. Um, I started a, a magazine in college that was interesting. It was a free publication that was um, centered around activities in the area. It was called Four Columbus Magazine. It had four different sections and that ultimately failed. And, um, and I was going to open a bar slash restaurant in Columbus. And I had this realization that, you know, if I don't leave now and try something else, I may never leave. And so 
I just I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere else and give it a shot. I was originally going to go to LA. I decided mm-hmm. not to go to LA. My girlfriend who now is my wife, but had just moved to Chicago. And so I landed on Chicago and I got in Chicago and I had no clue what I was going to do. I racked up credit card debt. I had no job. I was the kid who like, it's like, I'm not going to go get a corporate job. I would be miserable in that. I, I was, I hear a lot of people say this and I guess it was true for me. Like I was unemployable, right? Because I was probably the young kid who thought he knew everything and, uh, and people would get sick of. So <laughs> I, I just, I, I racked up debt until one day I was like, I have to do something or I'm, I'm going to get, I'm not going to have money to feed myself or for rent. Right. And so, um, I found a job, uh, with some guys that were making a lot of money. They were essentially storm chasers. They were climbing on roofs, um, identifying hail damage, and then crews would come in and repair it. And these guys made a lot of money. The, ir- huh. the, the irony there is that I'm afraid of heights. And so climbing on <laughs> roofs was, was a little bit out of character, but it paid the bills. I won every sales contest while I was there because I had to. Like I, I needed the $100 to, to pay rent or to eat, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So mm-hmm. um, on the flip side of that, which is kind of funny too, I, you know, I never went without, I never didn't go out with my friends. I always found a way. So anyways, all that's to say, I knew I didn't want to be doing this for long, but it paid the bills. I started going through my old cards that I had kept. And, um, one of them was, uh, this guy that I had met in, in Ohio who had started a vodka company. And basically I, I realized he was in the suburbs of Chicago and I bugged the shit out of him, called him every day until he finally answered. And then just, you know, laid it on thick until he finally hired me. And, uh, I remember at the time I was making, he, he asked me, what do you think you should make? And I had no clue. Uh, this might be my first real job. So I just looked it up on the internet. Like, what is a, what is a area manager for an alcohol company make? And it said, $42,000. And I went back to him and said, $42,000. And he hired me on the spot. And I thought in my head, oh, oh man, I probably undershot yeah. that, right? That's too fast. <laughs> yep. Yep. If they agree too quickly, you know, you probably, yeah. It's like that yeah, buyer's, you... rem- buyer's remorse or seller's remorse. And so, uh, you know, sure. I, but I was like, whatever, I have a job. It, it doesn't matter. And ultimately, I learned the alcohol industry through that job. I started off selling in what might be one of the hardest markets in the country on premise, which means bars and restaurants in Chicago. And ultimately, um, within two years, I was managing five states. And so I learned how alcohol is a three-tier system, right? You sell, there are suppliers or manufacturers, there are distributors, and then there are retailers or, or bars and restaurants, right? And, um, and I learned how to navigate that. And the reason all that's relevant is because... At, At one point, uh, our number one selling product was a cherry-flavored vodka. And we were selling a bulk of that product to be mixed with Red Bull in bars. And we called it a cherry bomb. And, you know, I was 24 at the time. This was like, this was the go-to drink. I'd go out all the time. I'd drink bomb shots or Red Bull and vodka. So it just made sense. And I was traveling on a sales blitz to California with that company I was out here in a store and I saw a product called Sparks, which was a, which was essentially an alcoholic energy drink. And I asked the store owner if it sold well. And he said it did. He said, but mostly bums buy it. And that was huh. kind of crazy to me because in my head, I'm thinking, I'm interested in this product. I'm not a bum. There's clearly, you know, uh, <laughs> clearly a, a, a miss here. 
And so I went back and this idea was percolating in my head. And, um, and, uh, I guess you're not getting the short version. You're getting the longer version, but, <laughs> but, but <he> <laughs> no, but I think that there's some good lessons here. Yeah. So please continue. Yeah. Th- this idea is percolating in my head. And, um, and then I realize um, that I, you know, I'm selling vodka and I, and I have these energy drink samples in my car because companies were giving them to me to kind of pitch in the bars at the same time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm, I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking I might be able to do this. And then um, what really sealed the deal for me to kind of make the jump and start my first company was I was going to a comedy show with my wife. Again, at the time was just uh, was my girlfriend. And it was a BYOB comedy show. And, um, hmm. we stopped at a liquor store. I'm in, you know, in downtown Chicago. I stayed in the car. She just ran in. She came out. She had smeared off ice. And she said, you know, I'm kind of tired. I was going to get Red Bull and vodka, but it's just the two of us. I didn't want a whole bottle of vodka. You know, all the reasons she didn't get it. And it clicked. I was like, there's clearly a need for this product. And so I think I told her that night, I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to start an alcoholic energy drink or a caffeinated alcoholic beverage. And she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Let's go to the show. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I, I called my buddy, the same buddy that I had started that, uh, that high end or the attempt at the high end travel agency. And we both said, let's, let's give it a shot. And, um, we started working on it and probably a couple months later, I quit my job and, um, we ended up calling a third partner and, and that's how fusion projects are. My first company was born. And, um, that company ultimately went on to create one of the most notorious alcoholic beverages in history called four loco. So that was where I got my start. And that, that put me into beverages, um, from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it grew, grew like crazy. Um, and it looks like you, you were there for what, 15 years or so, um, running that. Are you, uh, are you still involved with the company or are you fully on, on, on Koya now? No, I'm, well, I don't manage that company. So I'm not involved in day to day at all. My partners completely run it. I still mm-hmm. own my share of the company. We only raised a little bit of money. So, um, so the three of us own that company, but they manage it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that, that, you know, definitely tells us how you got into beverages. Um, uh, so you, uh, in that story, you mentioned the three tier system. And so I was wondering if maybe you could explain that a little bit to those who aren't familiar with that at all. Yeah. So in alcohol, it's a little bit different. And, and now that I live in a world where I've had a lot of experience in alcohol and in non-alcohol, I realize the differences. So in, in non-alcohol, as an example, you can sell a product to anyone. I can, I can make a product, literally take it in the back of my car, go to a grocery store, gas station, bar, restaurant, and say, do you want to buy this and sell it? With alcohol, it's a highly regulated industry. And so after prohibition, one of the... Um, I guess the structure they put together is called the three-tier system. And it's essentially to prevent um, what they call tied house, which means someone that owns a brand um, doesn't own a distributor or someone that owns a distributor doesn't own a retailer or a bar. And the idea is to make sure that it's kind of a fair, uh, you know, an even playing field. And so again, remember, obviously illegal at one point then becomes legal again. So that's the structure. There's, there's the, the brand or the supplier. So in our case, Fusion Projects created the products. We would sell it to distributors who are, uh, cover certain geographies, right? In, in distilled spirits and wine, those are usually statewide distributors in 
beer, they're normally like covering certain counties. And then there's the re- the the third tier, which is the either the retailer uh, or the on-premise account, the bar uh, mm-hmm. or the restaurant. And so, so the interesting thing with that is you have to really facilitate multiple levels of stakeholders and customers, right? So our customer as a supplier was really the distributor. They're the ones who bought it from us and paid us. But we had to facilitate the de- selling that into the retailer. So establish relationships with retailers and make sure our product was, was featured, sold in. And then we ultimately had to establish relationships with the end customer to make sure they went in and bought it. I see. Yeah. And, and so what's the difference between that and, and, you know, typical beverage market? Um, and then also, you know, what does this knowledge do for the, you know, anybody who's looking uh, to get into beverages, you know, um, what do they have to take away from, from that, uh, from that structure? Yeah. So there's, there's multiple differences. So like I was saying in non-alc, I could, I could make a, I'll just use an example. I can make a tea basically out of my house and I could mm-hmm. go sell it to a, a retailer or a local restaurant out of my truck, right? There's no regulation. I mean, obviously it has to be safe, right? But there's no regulation to say you can't do that. So that's, that's the, the, the basic level. Like I could go to a farmer's market and sell, sell the product there. Couldn't do that with alcohol without licensing. From a, from a macro level, what happens is there's just layer on layer upon layer of distributor or dish options. And so I'll, I'll use Koya as an example. With Koya, um, we sell our first large uh, national account, or our first large account in general was Whole Foods. We launched them nationally. To sell to Whole Foods, we need to use called UNFI. That's their preferred distributor. So we sell to UNFI, they sell to Whole Foods. But to another retailer, I might sell directly to them, say Albertsons, Vons, right? I can sell directly to their warehouse. So there really is no distributor. It's their own distributor. Then there's what's called a DSD, direct store distributor. So that, that's the person that really is hitting. They're sending a person into the account to take an order and then also to merchandise the, the store, make sure the product gets on the shelf. They deliver it to the store. Um, they go kind of up and down the street to independent accounts. Then there's food service distributors and there's, there's military distributors. And so there, it's just, it's not broken out clean by a geography. Like in alcohol is an example. Um, you, you said you're in, well, Utah's not a good example. Uh, I'll say San Diego. San uh-huh. Diego County may be covered by one distributor that is the exclusive distributor for alcohol. We may have five distributors in non-alc that, that touch all the different accounts within that same county. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different. And we can do direct to consumer, right? Well, let's. Uh, you did touch on Koya, uh, and I realized that we haven't even, you know, told the audience what what Koya is. Uh, do you mind explaining what what it is and and what led to the founding of, of Koya? Yeah, sure. So, so Koya um, at its core is a convenient, nutritious, delicious plant based beverage. And I used to say it was a plant based protein drink, which is true. And that was our first line of products, but we've diversified and I can touch on that in a, in a minute, uh-huh. um, all around the idea that there can be nutritious and delicious plant-based. So I, I guess my own personal evolution. So uh, kind of at the end of my tenure at, at Fusion, I started investing in better for you food and beverage brands, partially because it was aligned with my lifestyle, right? So <clears throat> I've always been into health, but what health meant changed. And so when I was younger, that was 
lifting a lot of weight to play football or wrestle, right? And just, uh, I was worried about trying to look good, right? And then as, as I grew older and my wife became a nutritionalist, we understood more about underlying health issues and how food is medicine and you can prevent that. And so we changed our diet. And then our second son was born dairy intolerant. And my wife kind of discovered that through process of elimination. And so we became a dairy-free household. And mm. so at that time, I had a friend in Chicago who called me and he said, hey, we're looking at this beverage product, this, this plant-based protein drink to potentially invest. It's really small, but he's like, you're a beverage guy where you take a look. So I took a look at it, sounded interesting, just happened to be in my gym and they have a little like a, you know, a little store there. And I came out and the, the product was there. So I, I got it and tried it. It was six bucks or something. It was expensive, but it was really good. It tasted great. Um, and so I, I met the original founders of this product that was called Raw Nature 5. I call it Koya 1.0 or it's proof of concept. It was in this squatty bottle with this homemade, you know, label and kind of a bad name. It was called Raw Nature 5, like I mentioned. But I was like, there's something here. And the belief for me came from the fact that we were in Chicago, a, a typical like meat and potatoes town, right? Not known at least historically for being the, on the cutting edge of health around food or beverage. And it seemed to be doing really well. And so I invested along with a bunch of other people in the industry. And after a few months, um, the company was having some trouble, all, all kinds of different things. Like we weren't confident that, you know, it was living up to the nutritional panel. There were some concerns about, was it safe because the way it was being produced? And so ultimately, um, the company got into a tough spot. It was on the verge of insolvency. And... I got together with the guys that I invested with and we said, we think there's something here. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to come in and, and fund this company. And with that, um, I was coming, becoming a co-founder of the new company. We, we transitioned from an LLC to, to be incorporated because we were going to raise money, raise more money. And then I was going to play an interim CEO role. And so in that time, we evolved the brand from Raw Nature 5 to become Koya. At its core, it was still the same in, in terms of plant-based protein drink, high plant protein, low sugar. Um, but it cha everything changed about it, the name, the aesthetics. Um, and so that's that was kind of the original story around it. We had some great partners uh, who invested and who helped us get an audience with Whole Foods. Uh, there's some pretty pretty crazy stories around it. Um, you know, early on, there was a, an approval for a national Whole Foods launch. And this was before I had officially come in as co-founder and CEO. I was just an investor at that time. And uh -huh. unfortunately, the company was unable to meet that, that deadline. And so, you know, this is back when Whole Foods was really a regional company. So to get a national um, launch was a huge deal. Right. And we, we missed it. And we're like, oh, shit, yeah. you know, this isn't going to happen again. And so there were three criteria for me to do this investment and, and come in and take this role, this co-founder CEO role. Um, one of them was we had to prove that the product was scalable from a production standpoint. The second was we had to make sure that this particular broker was on board. And third was we had to get some level of support from Whole Foods. And we actually ended up doing all three. And so in September of 2015, we launched nationally with, with Whole Foods. And so the, that's awesome. Um, so the brand has evolved since then. So our mission is, is to deliver convenient, nutritious, plant-based options to everyone. And 
there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I just kind of circle back to the original statement. It started out with, with plant protein drinks. We looked for ways to bring that to life in other lines. So we were the first plant-based keto line. Then we launched uh, what we called an elevated coffee line. And then most recently, we launched what we think is our, our most exciting line, which is a, a plant-based low-sugar smoothie line to compete with naked uh, smoothies and boathouse. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a couple things that I wanted to drill in on there. Um, you know, you said that when, when uh, you were, you know, first introduced to the product, um, that you, you actually said a couple of times that there was something there, right? You knew there was something there. What do you think it was about that product that, you know, that captured your attention like that? Um, what I, what captured my attention and I think, uh, became one of the kind of cornerstones for how I think about developing and, and investing in products is that it has to translate across multiple, a, a diverse audience. And by diverse, I mean, ethnicities, geographies, economic status. And what I noticed with Raw Nature 5 in, in that form was there was something buzzworthy about it. Like people, I went into a store that it was being sold in and I watched somebody pick it up and they were telling their friend about it. And ultimately they're like, this stuff is delicious. And it was almost shocking that the nutritional panel was as good as it was. Now in the in the end we learned that the nutritional panel was wrong. So it's probably over <laughs> it's probably seemed overly um, amazing, right? That that it was sure. so delicious for for this nutritional panel. But but I think that was a big part of it, realizing that again, uh there were different angles to it. So for people on the coast as an example, and I'm just giving you know broad sweeps of mentalities, but people on the coast, they willing to pay $14 for a smoothie that doesn't taste that good because they think it's healthier for them. But in Midwest, and particularly in Youngstown, as is always my example of the Midwest, people aren't doing that. If it doesn't taste good, they're not buying it, regardless of the supposed supposed benefits. What I realized early on with, with Koya was we had two approaches, depending on who you're talking to, and that's carried over to this day. One is if you're a label reader and very health conscious, we start with the fact that it's plant-based, it's low sugar, it's uh, you know an excellent source of fiber, all those attributes. And then when they drink it and it's really good, they're surprised and they become loyal customers. The exact opposite happens in different areas. And I'll use 7-Eleven as an example. We were in 7-Eleven recently because we just launched with them nationwide. Mm-hmm. We told somebody it was plant-based and they were like, oh, I don't want to drink it. And I said, it's a healthy milkshake. And as soon as we said that, they go, oh, okay, cracked it open, taste it. Wow, this is delicious. Then the follow-up was, by the way, it only has four grams of sugar in the whole bottle. They could not believe that. And so it was a different approach of, oh, I, I don't have to sacrifice. I can, I can do better. I can make better choices at every meal. And it doesn't require sacrifice. I'm in, right? And that's how they become loyal fans. So that, that's what I think the it factor of Koya and all the beverages uh, that I've tried to develop has been. And um, so you mentioned also that you guys rebranded from Raw Nature 5. You know, uh, why did you guys choose to rebrand Akoya and, and maybe, you know, not saying it was a bad name, but why why didn't you continue with with Raw Nature 5 as, as the brand name? What were you looking uh, for? Well, there were a couple ones. One of the easy ones was it wasn't raw. So, <laughs> so you couldn't say that it was, you know, raw nature five and it not be raw. Uh, or there was some risk around that. And originally mm-hmm. it started out as raw and then it, it evolved. Um, so that was one. Two was the brand was confusing. People didn't get that name. And, uh, and, and my partners at the time, like 
the, the thinking behind the name was right on. It was raw, it was natural, and there were five ingredients. But that all changed throughout the course. And so when it was a, it was a small regional product that was being made in a commercial kitchen and so, sold to 20 stores, that made sense. It didn't as we scaled. Our goal was to make, make sure that this was available to everyone, as I mentioned earlier. And that means not only selling in Whole Foods and natural health stores, but selling in Walmart, selling in 7-Eleven. And so we hired a branding agency called Interact, which out of Boulder, which did a great job um, with a bunch of different naming options. Ultimately, Koya was the one um, that stuck. There's a cool spin on it. It was it's what's called an empty vessel. There's really no meaning behind it. Right. But it was inspired by the Nikoya Peninsula, which is one of the blue zones, five blue zones around the world. And those are places that people live longer than mm-hmm. anywhere else. And so the kind of the principles of the blue zones kind of applied to how I wanted to, uh, the values I wanted to have within the company, not only the product. And so, right. um, you know, that's, that's how we decided to rebrand. It was kind of necessary. And then it, we found some meaning behind it. And then ultimately we rebranded again, um, in, in terms of a redesign because the original look of Koya was very natural look and feel. And then as we expanded into conventional retailers and even mass, it didn't really pop. So we added the, the, the bright color package that you see today. Yeah. Yeah. Your branding's awesome. You know, I, I, I love it. And I, and it's also memorable, you know, um, I was in a Seven Eleven just the other day and, uh, and saw it. So, um, I remember the product, um, that's important too. Absolutely. Um, and then you mentioned, you know, several different trends, right? So keto, plant-based protein, um, even smoothie, you know, the smoothie trend and then low sugar. Um, and so I, I think that maybe there's a lesson there in terms of, uh, kind of following, you know, the market or, or, you know, trying to be where the market's going, you know, what are, what are your thoughts around that? How do you think about it? It's a double-edged sword, right? So I think uh, it depends on the size of the trend. And so I'll, I'll give you the example. Um, early on, uh, the low sugar movement uh, was apparent, right? There was the art- There was an article in the New York Times that revealed that um, you know the sugar industry had had uh, successfully pinned fat as the enemy, and that that wasn't actually true, and sugar was the enemy. And so the tide had had been and was significantly changing before and clearly after that article. So low sugar was, it was an easy one. Plant-based was, was really interesting because it was an evolution of a, of a prior trend being vegan, right? But plant-based was more friendly, less exclusive, more welcoming. And so we really centered around this idea of flexitarianism. Like you don't have to be plant-based or vegan all the time, you can just try to make better decisions at each meal. So that that was an easy one to kind of see and for us to ride in terms of product development. Keto is an interesting one that worked out, but we we thought that keto could have been a flash in the pan um, and, and, and maybe could have gone the way of Atkins, right? I, I think now that that's not going to happen, but but the idea, and we talked to one of our brokers about this that helped us crystallize this. The idea was that the, the underlying trend of keto is that it's low sugar, low net carbs, and that fat is good, right? And so our thought when we developed that was we'll ride the wave of the name keto. But even if keto, the name, becomes a negative or falls out of fashion, 
we think the idea that low sugar and healthy fats is here to stay. And so our product can still live. That line can still live. But I'll give you an example of maybe going too far outside of the cores. Like we jumped on the adaptogen trend and I personally love them. I have put ashwagandha and lion's mane in my coffee every morning. We developed a coffee line that put some of those in it and it failed. And since the brand had been built out and what it meant had was now established, we we later realized that this was too far of a stretch from what was authentic to brand. And so I think it also depends on the life cycle of the company, uh, how you follow those trends. But hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, Chris, I'm looking at I'm looking at time, and I know that uh, that you've got a hard stop here. Um, so I wanted to just make sure to jump uh, right to sort of uh, our quick fire round. You know, I've got four questions for you. Just give me the the answer that comes uh, to to your mind the fastest. Name one tool or resource that has helped you in your current position. Uh, Google calendars. Uh, what is one book that has that has helped you in your career? Think and Grow Rich. Napoleon Hill. I love that book. Sure. Yeah. Um, have you read the, what is it, the 11 principles or the, the much bigger volume that Think and Grow Rich was based off of? I have not. No. Um, but I remember Think and Grow Rich and I followed it to a T. I wrote it down and I read it out loud every morning and every night. And I remember afterwards, shortly afterwards, looking back and saying, wow, what I wrote has come true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a remarkable book. Um, what is uh, one piece of advice that you would give your 21 year old self? Uh, don't get so wrapped up in the current moment. It'll all work out. And, uh, who is, uh, one person in your, in your field of work or, you know, another entrepreneur, another investor that you look up to that you would love to, to take to lunch? Oh gosh, I've, I've taken a lot of them to lunch. I had the pleasure of meeting him, but I think, uh, maybe someone who's not around anymore would be Sidney Frank, you know, uh, learning about him. He was, if you don't know, he was the importer of Jägermeister and the person that turned, this bitter beverage into a phenom across the, the country. Um, and he was, he was a marketing genius. And so I would love to have some time with him to pick his brain. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, look, uh, Chris, I think, um, I think this is awesome. The time flew by. Um, I think you've got a fantastic story. Um, you know, there's, there's lots more we could have uh, dug into, but, you know, maybe you could leave us with some, some parting words for, you know, other entrepreneurs that are in the physical products space. You know, what, what would you say to somebody that's currently grinding it out in, in that space? I think just to remember that um, it takes time. And especially if you're a physical product that needs to be in brick and mortar, which I think most, if not all of them do, like distribution just takes time. And so you know, be patient. Okay. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Hey, I appreciate you uh, jumping on with us today. I think you've been a great guest and, um, you know, just, just best of luck with everything. And, uh, you know, let us know when you have a, another launch and we'll promote it. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, our smoothies just came out. So we have our low sugar smoothies and we were fortunate to get a lot of uh, recent press. Um, Kim Kardashian mentioned them on, uh, on social media as, as one of her favorites. And he also mentioned it wasn't an ad. And Chris Paul, who's, who's, uh, killing it in the, the NBA right now has, has done the same. So, uh, that's the most recent stuff and, uh, and people should check it out. And where, when, where can they find that? What, 7 Eleven, Whole Foods? Uh, Whole Foods, Walmart, Target. Um, uh, it's not in 7 Eleven yet, but it should be soon. Uh, about 16,000 retails across the country or on our website, drinkkoya.com. 
Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, Chris, and uh, I'll let you jump off. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, see ya. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.